Welcome to Stand Up to Stand Out, the podcast. I'm your host, Stuart Papp, and for the last decade plus, I've been working with innovators and leaders inspire others to take action. My goal with this podcast is to give you practical, tactical advice that you can use now. Whether you're scaling a company, leading a new team, or advocating for meaningful change, this show is designed to help you make a positive impact with those who count. So let's learn together and have some fun along the way. Let's get to it. I am absolutely delighted to have two guests with me today. So it is going to be twice the fun. So first I have Glenn R. Carroll. He's a professor of organizational behavior at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Uh, He runs a transformational leadership program with Fortune 500 companies and most recently the co-author of Making Great Strategy. I also have Michael Arena, the author of a groundbreaking research on adaptive space, beautiful graphics, by the way, which won the 2017 Walker Prize from People and Strategy. His work has been cited in the Wall Street Journal, Chief Executive Magazine, Harvard Business Review, and Arena teaches in Penn's Master's in Organizational Dynamics program and acts as a design thinking coach at Stanford Design School. Welcome, Glenn. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Stuart. Great to be here. So recently, you teamed up on a podcast episode that I recommend everyone listen to, and I'll include a link in this podcast. So the title was Ties That Bind, Why Remote Teams Need the Right Connection. And immediately, I read that title. I knew I had to listen to it, and I'm thrilled to have you both today. What does it mean to have the right connection? And we'll start with you, Michael. Well, I mean, I, you know, so Glenn and I have been talking connections for years and studying networks and how connections show up in organizations. And I would say people have been loosely interested in that topic over time. And then this, you know, thing called COVID hit. And all of a sudden, our connections started to matter at a whole different level. And almost immediately, uh, we were surprised, positively surprised, like, hey, we're able to maintain certain types of connections and be productive in this remote environment. And yet there were other types of connections that dropped off the planet from the very beginning. And just to put that in context, you know, our close ties, our bonding relationships, you know, within our teams generally, you know, we were able to translate that quite rather well, uh, quite well over into a remote environment. But our bridging connections generally, or some people call them weak ties, or there was some overlap with weak ties, started to drop off the planet. In one, one study, we saw a 30% decline in as little as two months, which are those connections across teams or across groups. And you know, I think that led us to, I don't know, Glenn, how we got started on this, but I think that led us to a conversation around like, hey, productivity looks fine, at least in the short term here, but what about innovation? And what about you know, creativity, which we know come from those later types of connections? Yeah, so, so one of the things we know about innovation is it often comes about through chance encounters where you meet somebody at the water cooler and you make some comment and they say, oh, I never thought about that. That reminds me of X. And these are kind of casual chance encounters that occur in the normal workday. And when you go to online uh, devices like Zoom, everything becomes much more intentional and purposeful. And so even when you try to do casual encounters, they have a kind of stifled feeling. So what we were worried about was that the kind of chance elements 
that sometimes, in, not always, but sometimes induce ideas for innovation, that those might get lost in the remote world, even though productivity seemed to be going up. One of the things I heard from my clients is that the pandemic shifted the world into very black and white. I'm either in a Zoom meeting or I'm not, and I'm with my kids or doing something else. But what was missing was the gray area, meeting somebody at the water cooler, at the elevator, having coffee with somebody. And they missed that because it was sort of the cement that bonded the bricks together. How can we bring that back so that we foster innovation? Michael has a lot of specific ideas and things he implemented when he was at, at AWS and is seen in other companies. But um, I think part of our reason to write this article was reaction to kind of blanket policies. The companies would come back and say, well, we want people to be in the office three days a week, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then the rest of the time it can be, be remote. And that just seemed artificial to us and not kind of uh, fit to purpose. And so... I'd say one of the main messages in our article was, you know, you ought to think about, be intentional and think about what the purpose of your team is or what the goal is, what the purpose of a meeting is going to be, and then decide, can we do it online and is it still going to be as effective as it would be, or should we do it in person? And if so, what's the best way to do it in person? And then, of course, there are other, you know, devices like Slack and the like that that are kind of intended to to you know, present a, a relaxed online environment. But, but again, I think those are often more artificial and stifled than a real uh, lunchtime conversation, let's say. I remember you know, early days of the pandemic where this really started to come up was, hey, we can be productive in this environment, but can we continue to innovate on behalf of the customer for the customer in the long haul? And, and there were multiple conversations happening across all kinds of organizations to the effect of, remember what used to happen between meetings? You know, you would either sit in your chair and talk to somebody offline, off script, off agenda about something they just said in that meeting, or you would walk with them in hallway conversation from that meeting to the next. And that's where the real innovation happens. You know, I, I know we oftentimes say it's the proverbial, you know, water cooler rarely is. It rarely, it's most often like, something was seeded in this meeting. And it's a little bit to your question, Stuart, you know, it was off agenda versus on script. And that's what we've lost if we're not intentional. And, you know, we more recent study, this isn't in the article, but a more recent study we've been looking at is formal interactions. Like we can look at all those different things on passive channels, you know, Zoom or Microsoft Viva, Microsoft Teams, if you will. We can look at passive interactions and we can see those things that were scheduled and those things that weren't. And what we what we are finding is the formal things like meet, management reviews, team meetings, um, town halls, those formal things, those things that are scheduled and planned for and are traditional meetings where we are always with an agenda and always on, you know, those actually translate quite well, even in a remote environment. When you compare people remotely working versus those in the office, uh, which we've been able to do with some recent data sets, you don't see a whole lot of difference in the network on formal interactions where you see a radical change. And in fact, if you're remote, you might actually see a small increase in formal interactions, if anything. Uh, but where you see a big difference 
is on informal connections. So that's the hallway conversation after a meeting. That's the, I need to figure out how I'm going to influence somebody to make a different decision. And this isn't a person I interact with every day. There are these discovery connections that are so critical to innovation. And what we saw was those are dropping off, you know, anywhere from 25 to 30% for those people who are working exclusively remotely or predominantly remotely. So that's a long-winded response to get to the answer to your question. One of the things we think we can do, but we're still in the early stages of this, is make those informal interactions more formal. You know, what can you do to create a formal interaction with that hallway conversation? Or what can you do to really force some of these informal things like who you go to for career advice or who do you go to for new ideas? How can you sort of formalize that in such a way that it's not just getting lost for those people who are working remotely? Sometimes that could be as simple as, you know, we're going to take 10 minutes at the end of the meeting and go completely off script and just brainstorm on anything that you can think of that came up in that meeting. And, you know, and you just basically approximate what's happening after the meeting in a physical environment. And, you know, those are the things that we think you can get more intentional about in order to you know, really amp up the informal interactions. So if I understand correctly, we're pretty good at doing work that's, quote, on the page in these remote meetings. But it's that off the cuff, you know, finding organic interactions, mentorship opportunities, career growth, bonding friendships that we can start designing into formal meetings for people who are remote, right? So the first 10 minutes, the last 10 minutes, would that be a step in the right direction, at least according to what you're seeing for preliminary research or the indications? Yeah. And I think even something, you know, like sometimes in meetings, people will disable chat, let's say in Zoom. Well, you know, letting chat flourish is actually a way to let people continue these normally informal conversations and let them have access to the chat notes afterwards. And, you know, it, it may appear to be a distraction of sorts, but, you know, it's actually conveying information. People don't want to, you know, they're not going to write a message if it's not meaningful to them. Right. So I remember in my career years and years ago, I went through a training program and it was a week with a whole bunch of us in a different part of the country. And we really bonded. We were all together for a week, pretty much night and day. And then everyone flew back to their part of the country. And, you know, I haven't even talked to many of those people or seen them in many, many years, but that connection is still there. And I think people can relate to this sort of intensive in person where you get a chance to have all the spectrum of interactions with someone in a short time. What are some ideas for the future of work? I, I love that you landed on ideas. I won't speak for Glenn, but I think I can. Like the, the real answer to your question is it depends on the context. It depends on the company. It depends on what you're trying to do. Like it depends on a bunch. Of, it's always contextual. And you know, it's hard to say like, absolutely, you know, this is how networks form because there are so many other aspects to the way this really happens. I think one, a couple of thoughts and, and Glenn knows much about this as well. So please add Glenn much more, I should say. So please add. One is it's easy. It's, it's not difficult to reformat these, what we call dormant ties in social science, like these bridge connections you know, people who you were connected to from a different group, who you built trust with. You know, Glenn and I don't interact with each other very often, but it's not hard for me to pick up the phone and just call Glenn. And within five minutes, 
we're back in the same flow of the last conversation we had, even if it shows up as a dormant tie in my network. That's not the real risk. The real risk is the risk of me forming new ties with people like Glenn so that I can continue to learn and continue to discover and innovate long-term. And that's where we believe, I believe, um, that coming back together face-to-face from time to time to build that, you know, at least personal trust is important. Um, And how often you do that, you know, when you do that, in what context, I think all those things are, you know, they're, they're all dependent upon what you're trying to accomplish and so on. Yeah, to reinforce that, if I remember correctly, Michael, you told me you saw in some of the data you have that during the pandemic, that groups that were already established were able to continue pretty efficiently and effectively online. But the real trouble was with the newcomers who had trouble, you know, onboarding and kind of socialized and feel like they were really a part of the group. And, you know, and that that took a lot longer because they didn't have this intensive uh, initial component that we often have in, in, in starting a job. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's, that's where, that's where some of the things around even productivity have begun to break down a little bit in an exclusively remote environment because you have so much newness. You don't have quite the level of bonding or cohesion because it's, it's just, it, you can earn trust remotely. It's just, it is true, but it takes many more iterations. It's, uh, takes and none of us have more time these days, and you know it's that part that's harder to do. One of the things you can do, we believe you can do, is you can fast track that. You can accelerate that process by getting together periodically, and you, know, you get the face to face time. And as social creatures, we tend to earn trust more quickly face to face as opposed to virtually. What's a process that someone could have if they're running a remote teams, like a lot of my clients are, or standing up a new team and everyone is all over the globe? You know, what, what's a way to approach it from a forward thinking and a backward looking perspective? Yeah, I think, I think the world we live in now, it's very hard to determine up front what you're going to like and don't like. You almost have to experience it. So at least my, my intuition is, you know, schedule different things, try them out, and then get the reactions to those and then develop a plan based on that. If you do it purely based on, you know, preferences without the experiences, maybe you'll get it right. But it, it, I think you're absolutely right. People don't know what they want a lot of the times these days. And I think that's going to just, that's going to amplify, you know, as people start coming back in the office, if being there gets you more FaceTime with the boss, you get a lot of more information, you get involved in, you know, new things more easily, you get promoted faster, you get involved in the top projects, then that people are going to see that and say, well, I'm missing out by not by not being in the office. So it's going to evolve. And I don't think we know where it's going to go, but it wouldn't surprise me if there's a premium on being back before too long. Yeah, I, I would concur with everything Linda said. I, I think it's about experimentation. Like, this is a new world. Like we have never been here before. If you were to ask me, could have we been productive in a complete remote environment? I would have said, like pre-pandemic, I would have said, absolutely not. Like everything I ever learned is that proximity matters to performance. Turns out that's not true. Turns out that proximity is more of a proxy for cohesion. It's not, you know, we were measuring the wrong variable and you can sustain that remotely. But moving forward, I think we got to experiment our way there because we've, we've never worked in this kind of an environment. 
And and I don't think employee listening is important. Like in corporations, we would describe you know this attitude or preference from an employee perspective as being the listening system, and it's super important. And we absolutely need to listen to what our employees are saying. But many of us, including myself, are walking hypocrites. I mean, my favorite study was a study where you know an organization had asked the question, "What percent of you, or what would you prefer, working remotely?" Or coming back to the office and 77, I think this is the right number, 77% of those human beings said, I want to continue to work remotely. Same survey, same human beings, 63% of those same people said, so just do the math in your head, 63% of the same, the total population surveyed said, I can't wait to get back in the office to be with my colleagues. So, you know, it's a little bit of what you said, Stuart, like, we don't really know what we want completely. Um, we definitely want the flexibility and the autonomy and all the benefits of working remotely, but we're missing some things as well. And I, to Glenn's point, like we're going to experiment and experience our way to a better future that's going to get us sort of the win-wins on a both. You know, there are going to be times to come in the office that are going to be super advantageous. And there are plenty of times where we're going to be more productive, heads down, remotely. You know, I was writing all morning. I couldn't do that in the office. I, I, I remember you know, whenever I used to have to write from a job standpoint, I had to schedule time out of the office just to focus and concentrate. And today I don't have to schedule that. I just block out my calendar. So I think I think we're going to figure out our way there. And it's going to probably be a better ending point than what the starting point was pre-COVID. And both things can be true. One can want to work remotely and want to be with their colleagues. What I think the pandemic has shown us is that bringing back some autonomy is good for workers, but it also is good for their families and their caregiving. So, you know, can we find a way forward? And it seems like we really can. And we just have to be intentional about it. If your goal is to write a new book, maybe you should stay out for the next, you know, three, three months. And if, if your goal is to uh, run a new innovation project, maybe you should take over the offices for a month some version where we're being really intentional about what's the outcome of that work over the time. But and I couldn't agree more. And that should have been true from the beginning, right? Like that was true even before, you know, it's a form follows function model. We, we should first ask our question, what's the function we're trying to solve for? You know, are we trying to discover new ideas? Are we trying to, you know, build out those ideas into products or, you know, solutions, or are we trying to influence others? And, and that's what we did try to articulate in the article. Like, are you ideating? Are you incubating that idea? You know, sort of building on that idea, or are you, you know, trying to scale that idea? And each of those functions requires a different form of interaction. And and that's you know that was always true. That was true regardless. It's just more prevalent now. It's more noticeable now because you literally have to change environments to make that happen. And I could see that really being an accelerant. So if you say to everyone, look, we're in ideation mode, so we're going to invest and work this way because that's the phase we're in. And then if that chapter is over and you're in incubation mode or execution or scale mode, you know, even signaling that to people with their environment saying the reason we're all working remotely is because now we're in that phase. I think that could actually be an accelerant to, to just be a cue. This is the phase we're in and this is how we're working. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, I also think though it, you know, it puts more onus on the manager to kind of think about things and set it up in advance. And, and that that could be a challenge in some cases. And, 
you know, it creates more overhead and more points of discussion, contention perhaps, but, but it's absolutely the right thing to do. I mean, it, it may help you figure out who's a really good manager and who isn't as well. I want to pivot to something that's a theme I, I saw in both of your excellent books. And this is the idea of conflict or challenging. And it's, it's something that is, it's easier to talk about and harder to do. So Glenn, I'm looking at making great strategy and one quick excerpt here that you can both unpack, but we'll start with you, Glenn. So vigorous arguments should be encouraged and celebrated provided that people are arguing constructively. So there's a lot in that sentence. So maybe we could talk about encouraging vigorous arguments and celebrating them, what that looks like in, in organizations. In our book, we're talking about arguing about or discussing or debating strategy. What should be the position of the firm going forward in its, let's say, product market or service market? And, uh, you know, people often wind up thinking that arguments are a bad thing and that, you know, the last thing we want to do is have a fight. And I can't believe they were disagreeing. Often they're disagreeing over facts. And you can clarify what the facts are up front. Are you know there are ways to clarify them, and then you want to you want to have a discussion over you know what's the appropriate response to the facts or the things that you think are going to be the facts. And you got to accept that the future is uncertain. We don't know. We're trying to make our best choice, and we're trying to you know hedge our bets. But everybody has an opinion on that, and it's worth hearing those and taking them seriously. And then come into a reasoned judgment after that about what's the best the best course of action decision. You know, and people often take those positions very personally, and you know, and then it becomes you versus someone else. And it's not about an objective decision about what's the right thing for us to do collectively. And so we're trying to, you know, we're trying to make a case for arguing constructively in the sense that, you know, it's not about the person. It's not about the facts necessarily, if you vetted proper facts, but it's about, you know, what's the right thing to do in an uncertain world and why or why not would this make sense? And what are the assumptions you're making in the process? And, you know, you, you need, I think the leaders need to work hard to kind of establish that kind of dialogue uh, system so that people don't feel threatened by it and that they understand that it's not, it's not to be personalized. And picking up that theme, Michael, in your book, you had this idea of the challenger. So you have two parts of your book. Part one, uncovering the power of networks. Part two was opening up adaptive space. But in part one, you talk about broker, connector, energizer, and then the challenger. Would a challenger occupy that role in this setting that, or could occupy that role? Or maybe you want to unpack that for the audience and explain the role of a challenger and the value to an organization. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I will start by saying this. If everybody around you is saying, yes, 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 go, 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 um, you are most certain to fail. I'll start there. Like if you don't have some... Per some productive friction in the system, some element of pushback, whatever idea or whatever innovation you're building, it's never going to be as big or as bold as it could be or as effective as it could be. So I, the challengers, in you know, and I talk a lot about this in adaptive space, really play two critical roles. The first thing a challenger does is it looks at the existing, you know, sort of orthodox and it starts, that person starts to tear it down. Like, hey, this made us successful. This is what got us here, but this isn't what's going, the landscape's changed around us. We live in a dynamic world and we're not going to be able to continue to be effective if we stay the course of where we are. 
So a challenger will first disrupt on the front end to say conventional wisdom is no longer wise, if you will. But a challenger also works at the back end of the innovation process. Like I and Glenn, Glenn, I'm going to pick on Glenn for a little bit if I could. Glenn's one of my challengers. I pick up the call whenever I really want to know, like, is this idea a good idea? Because I have I, I have 10 ideas a day. Most of them are really lousy ideas, and I don't even believe in them by the end of the day. If I believed in it three three days in a week, then I want to work on that idea a little bit. And once I start to believe in it and start to stand it up and find a few people, you know, who I talk about finding a friend in the book, a few people that can help me co-build it, and I got a little bit of ownership with it, then I'll pick up the phone and I'll call my grand challengers. Glenn's one. Uh, there are others. And and like that, Glenn does something awesome for me. Like he tests, he foolproofs that idea. And it won't be the same idea by the end because, you know, I'm being challenged to think about it from a different perspective, which isn't my view of the world. And that's what a challenger does. A challenger adds production, productive friction to morph an idea uh, so that the idea can actually stand up in the world better, more effectively. What I notice is that people tend to assign in group at where everyone's working for the same company, the personality versus the role they're playing. And so a way around this could be one idea to kind of paraphrase you, Michael, is role playing like a red team uh, you know, game where you war game and say, okay, for the purposes of today, Stuart has uh, 10 ideas. You know, Glenn, you will oppose each one of these Michael, you'll support and then we'll flip-flop. So now I'm assigning you more of a role that's designed to get the best critical thinking. But at the end of the day, we can all go have a beer together because we know that we're colleagues, we're supporting each other. And once we agree, I will be there to support the execution of it. And, and sometimes I feel like people either commingle these or they don't distinguish that. So I don't know if there's a, a way around it to encourage this spirited constructive debate without diminishing or eroding relationships that are critical in work. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It becomes personal. So, you know, we, we discussed in our book using a, a, something a little less formal than what you're talking about with the teams, but, but just appointing someone as a so-called devil's advocate. So we're going to discuss, you know, whether to move into this product market uh, on day X, and uh, we'll have all the people who are in favor of it, lined up with their arguments. But we, rather than, you know, uh, wait for someone to naturally develop a, a, an opposing argument, which then kind of makes it personal because they're opposing the group, you assign one or someone or a team of people to say, okay, we would like you to muster the best set of counter arguments for why we should not do this. And it's understood that that's their job. They may or may not believe those positions, but they're charged with developing the best argument they can. And they're not supposed to take it lightly. They're supposed to really challenge it. And then you have a group discussion about that where everyone thinks like, okay, we're talking about ideas and possibilities. We're not talking about personal preferences or wishes or beliefs or our own interests. And, uh, and we can have a discussion on that at the end of the day, you know, come away still being good friends and, and colleagues and, and not have a personal uh, issue with somebody who took an opposing side. If you just let it occur naturally, you know, there's always the guy who's there who doesn't like anything 
and they say, oh, there goes Stuart again. And everybody rolls their eyes and, and they don't listen. And that's not what you want. You want them to listen. You want them to take it seriously. And you want to, you want the best ideas to win. I, I, there are a couple of things in there. And there's one other really effective way I've seen this done inside of corporations, actually at Amazon to be more specific. But one of the things that Glenn said that I think we just need to really emphasize is those counter arguments should never be about the inventor, only the idea, or never be about the creator, the strategist, but only the strategy in, in Glenn's context. And if you can do that, like if you can separate those two and people start to recognize you're not, you're not critiquing me, you're critiquing an idea. And, and really, if you're, if you're a fragile individual and you can't separate those two, that could be a problem for you. But I think it's really clear that they, you should be pulling apart the idea. I shouldn't say, Glenn, when you do this, you know, but I might counter-argue Glenn's you know, you know, hypothesis or you know, premise, if you will. The other way I've seen this done really well is put it back on the inventor themselves uh, preemptively. So one of the things that Amazon does really well is everything's written in a document. Um, so if you got a new idea, you write it up. And at the end of a document, there are pre-structured, hotly debated questions or hotly debated topics. And rather than waiting for someone else to show up, if there are things that I just am not certain about, or I think others are going to be um, uncertain about, I'll just raise them. Like if I'm writing that, that doc, I'll just raise them as issues. And then what happens is mostly people will agree with the things that you've written prior to that and focus most of the energy productive friction energy on solving for those two hotly debated topics. And rather than talking about 30 things, you spend your time perfecting and elevating two things. And all of a sudden, it's not at that point about the inventor at all anymore, the individual at all. It's about how are we going to make this better together at the end of the day? And if you don't have that tension, you know, I, I oftentimes would say, I think I even said this in, in Adaptive Space, you can't have a breakthrough unless there's something to break through. You know, you got to break through some conventional wisdom and you got to push that boundary. And that's, again, what the devil's advocate or, you know, the, the productive friction really does. It helps to shatter the original paradigm to think about it differently and elevate it. I'd like to ask about, I'm imagining a room where someone's presenting a new idea at some fast moving tech company. I've also heard if there's 10 people in a room, let's just say that two or three of them are extroverts and they may dominate and influence the tenor of the meeting. How does one encourage that diversity of thought in those critical meetings and make sure that just not a few people sway the meeting? So the psychologists have a technique they call nominal group technique or NGT, uh, which requires some setup, but it's very effective. And basically what you do is you circulate the questions or the issues that you're going to discuss in advance, and you ask for some preliminary advice or responses in advance, and then the meeting organizer collates those, collects them, and distributes them before the meeting, often without attribution to who said what. You say, okay, we said we're going to discuss moving into this product market, and there are 10 of you, six people favor it, four people don't, here are the reasons why, and they get all that information in advance. And then when you come in the meeting, I mean, it has the effect that it's very efficient because you're not wasting your time just explaining the positions. You're actually now going to be able to have an exchange to debate the viability of them. And, you know, you can get down to business a lot quicker and it's kind of depersonalized it. And it's also, you know, everybody feels the obligation to respond and the organizer should follow up if they don't. 
And you get all that input. And so even if they don't talk much in the meeting, they've had input into that. And so, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, studies in psychology that show this is actually a very effective way to run meetings where you're trying to make a decision. I've actually seen that automated and it's by far the most effective decision-making process I've ever been part of where exactly that a decision is being presented, you know, five independent people review it. I would have one notion to the end of maybe you said this, Glenn, um, but they, they all decide thumbs up or thumbs down. They add commentary. People don't see who was thumbs up or thumbs down until they've submitted their own. So it's locked in at that stage. And then and then the discussion is, you know, so Glenn, these were your points. And, and then the facilitator sort of brokers the dialogue. And if everyone's in alignment, you know, pulling those voices in are a less, less uh, meaningful or less needed, where if there's one or two people that are standing on the edge of a decision or have a contrarian view of something, they're pulled in. And I've seen it flip, you know, if there were six people and one person was, you know, sitting out, it's kind of like the 12 Angry Men movie, right? I've seen it flip in the other direction if properly facilitated because somebody had some really substantial things that everybody else just sort of looked past for whatever reason. So if you're if it's a critical business decision, it's worth taking that time and doing something like that. I also would say you're not always afforded the opportunity of using nominal group process in advance. Great leaders know how to make this happen on their own. You know, I worked with a, a phenomenal leader. I won't name by name right now, but in this particular case, at the end of a meeting, this person would call out the people who haven't spoken and say, you know, Jim, you've been silent or Jenny, I haven't really heard your point of view. You know, I know you have a point of view because we talked about this before. And a great leader will listen, 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 pull in different thoughts, and then at some point even help to make the decision at the end after that's all been considered. And I think leadership can really help to ensure that there's a balance of perspectives. I love that. So I hear, you know, really planning, designing it into the meeting, doing the work, getting the ideas on the page, using anonymous or blind ways to extract that those decisions, and then being proactive and pulling people in those all seem very you know, doable and action-oriented ways to make sure you're getting all the voices out. Uh, did I miss anything with those two? Well, it, it also, I mean, Michael said something I think is important to note. It also depends on the kind of decision you're making. And I, I think as Jeff Bezos is, is quoted as talking about, you know, really, really irreversible decisions versus those that are reversible. And so some of them are so big, you just came back at them. And for those, you really want to do as much pre-planning and this kind of deliberative process you can. If it's something that's a minor decision and, you know, if you make a mistake, you can go back and reverse it. You know, it may not be worth all this effort. Could you distinguish between broker and connector and then explain energizer and challenger just so we can understand? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, so these are four roles. You're on a continuum between a broker and a connector. You're never, you're in the same network. You're not going to be the both of those. In a different network, you could be. Um, and that's basically, we talked a little bit about this at the beginning of the podcast. That's basically your network position. So that is you're more central to a given team. A, a better way of describing a connector is a central connector, which means they're central to any given place in the network, any given team in the network. 
Uh, they have a lot of redundancy around them. So in other words, I'll, I'll pick on Glenn a little bit more. Glenn is a central connector you know, at, at Stanford Business School because he's super connected to everybody there and you know, other people are connected to each other. And most likely, he may argue with me about this, most likely, because that's what he does, he's in the center of that network, just as I was when I was at Amazon or General Motors with my team. A broker is someone who bridges across groups. Um, so a broker in, say, you know, take it to General Motors uh, context for a moment, would be a person who sat across four or five different teams or two or three different functions. They may be on the edge of their day-to-day -day function, uh, but they're, so, they're super connected to three other functions. So they provide this unique value of discovery and novelty or new insights because they see the world differently because they're sitting on the edge. So that's broker and connector. Brokers are really good at coming up with new ideas. Connectors are really good at bringing them into the world and building them. That's network position. And real quickly, an energizer or a challenger is your network disposition. It's not where you show up in the network, but it's how you show up in the network. If you're an energizer, it means that more often than not, you know, when Stuart brings up an idea, I'm going to be energizing Stuart or that idea. I'm going to be providing relational energy and trying to get other people excited about Stuart's idea. They play a role, or you could be the role that we just talked about a few moments ago, that challenger, that devil's advocate. And they each, you know, that disposition, and again, you're one or the other at any given point in time with any given team, that disposition is really important. On the front end, you want more energy of a new idea. On the back end, before you release it, before you send it to market, you want more challenge in the equation. And the combination of those four help you to think about like the different work modalities in any given organization. And is it helpful for someone, Michael, to sort of orient themselves and say, look, I'm new here. And, uh, you know, I may just want to, you know, sort of try to build out one role and then identify the brokers. And then I might be more of an energizer to just be a good listener supporter in the early stages of my career. And then, yeah, 100%. Um, your position and disposition should change over time and maybe even from, you know, network to network. Uh, real quickly, you know, somebody coming into an organization, we know this, and I can go into a lot of detail, which I won't right now. We know that the first thing you need to do is create this very sort of broad network real quickly, like just get to know people from four or five other functions, four or five other teams, because, you know, six weeks into the job, you're not going to be able to do that again because you're going to be heads down in your own work team. And at some point, you're going to need to rely on somebody who you build a bridging connection with. And But but quickly, you need to get to, I got to prove myself and I got to deliver something. And that usually happens more as a central connector. And if you go straight to being a central connector, and this there's real research I can share if anyone's interested, you're far more likely to burn out and far less likely to be able to tap into a broader base network if you need them later in, in that process. So, so yeah, the answer is yes, absolutely. And some, I'll, this is like just a real soundbite. If you actually see oscillation in your network between broker and central connector and back to broker across time, there's at least some evidence, and this is one of the things that I'm most jazzed up about researching right now, there's some evidence that it will make you far more productive compensation-wise, promotion-wise over the long haul, presuming you don't go from company to company 
you know, over those times. So, so it matters. It matters. And if you don't shift, you'll probably stall out in your career at some point in time. Glenn, we're going to go over to my, my uh, soul is in co- communication. And in chapter seven of your book, Making Great Strategy, you talk about communicating strategy. And I want to specifically talk about one takeaway. And I'm going to read from uh, the book here. But basically, uh, recognizing there are a number of different ways to do this, we believe the best messages contain four elements. One, a concise description of the strategic opportunity, so what it is. Two, a forthright acknowledgement of the primary obstacles to success, so what's in the way. Three, an articulation of the logic by which the organization will overcome those, so how we're going to get past them. And four, a clear connection between the strategy and the action, so the execution. So what I'm hearing it and as sort of what's the opportunity, what's in the way, how we're going to get past it, and what we're going to do about it. Yeah. So part of the motivation for us to to write this was that you know we find a lot of companies try to regard their strategy as secret, and you know I think this is something that we should hide, and yet. We noted a book, like if you Google the company's name and strategy, it always comes up and it's, it's out there. So what are they trying to hide in the first place? So the reason to articulate it is so that you can tell everybody on your team and all of your suppliers and all of your customers, you know, what it is you're trying to do and the plan by which you're trying to achieve it. You know, you're not going to reveal any proprietary secrets about your technology or maybe your R&D process or some of the people you're going to use, but you're going to tell them generally how you're going to overcome these obstacles that are out there. I think one example we gave in the book was was Elon Musk's uh, plan for early plan for Tesla, where he talks about the, the Tesla super secret master plan. And it's basically, what, four or five sentences where he lays out exactly what they're going to do by building this sports car in the beginning that's going to be over, you know, overcharging for what it's worth, but it's going to accumulate the capital and demonstrate the ability to do it. And then they're going to invest that in a more mass-oriented vehicle that's then going to you know, go into large-scale production and make them all their money. Now, there are lots of details left out there, but everybody can see kind of where we're going and why we're going there and kind of the the ways by which we're doing it. And it allows them to understand where you're going, but also to raise any questions about how we're going to get there. And internally, those questions, you know, can be answered in a proprietary way if necessary. But, you know, it's it's a way of letting people know, you know, where you're going and why why you're getting there. And then like, it's not, these are not secrets anyway. So it's kind of crazy to act like they are and treat them that way. Yeah. And it, it's it, if you ask the average person who's working at a company that they love and are inspired by, what's the strategy here? I think I think a lot more people than not would, would come up blank. So there seems to be real value in communicating. We talk a lot about um, being comfortable with failure and failing fast and learning from that. I think in some ways that's... Uh, engendered a view that uh, we should figure out our options, pursue one of them, and then very quickly determine whether or not it's succeeding. And I think that companies often abandon those roots of action before they really know whether they have a chance of succeeding. So, uh, you know, you see this in small companies, also big companies where, okay, we have this test project, we have this pilot, we're going to put it out there, We've shown we can do it. It works. It resonates with some customers, but it's not making the kind of money we thought it would in the first year or two. So it's not viable. 
Well, that's just not long enough to really test its viability much of the time. And so I think, you know, be, having the patience to kind of really see these things through and to get some hard indicators of whether or not it's working or not is, is something that uh, a lot of companies should should do more than, than they do right now, I think. So, so pivoting is popular, but, you know, you don't want to just pivot at the first sign of, of adversity. You want, you, want to, you want to make sure that it really isn't viable. I would say, and I mostly work with internal innovators, so it's a little bit different because the social dynamics are a little bit different. But I would say speed matters disproportionately. This is a little bit of what Glenn was saying. You know, keep a team small, keep a group of entrepreneurs small, test feature set by feature set one at a time, don't try 30. And velocity matters, like keep proving it, test it again. Okay, it didn't work under those conditions, test it again. And I think it's that agile process of iteration and then and only then, once you think you've got something that we'll call minimum viable product or solution, do you start to think about scaling? And that's where I didn't talk a lot about this. We talked around this, but that's where energy or energizers play such a critical role inside an organization because they can really help to lift up that idea and carry it out across you know, the broader social architecture. So speed, speed, speed. And then and only then, after you feel like you've proven something, do you start thinking about scaling? And that's where energizers can play a role. I love it. So many insights today. So I just want to say thank you, Glenn, R. Carroll, Michael Arena. Thank you so much for your time, energy, and insights today. This was a spirited discussion full of insights from both of you. Uh, so Glenn, where can people go to learn more about your work? And then Michael, same question for you. Uh, so I'm at the Stanford Business School. I have a website, you know, their faculty profiles that has links to just about everything I do or know. So uh, books, articles, uh, posts online, et cetera. So that's probably the easiest place. Connectedcommons.com uh, is where a lot of this research about networks is, um, the research that we've done collectively with that institution. And then find me on LinkedIn and you can uh, you know, connect up with some of the other resources. That is perfect. So thank you so much for being on the show today. And uh, you'll get all the links in our podcast page. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stuart. It's a great conversation. Thanks for listening to the Stand Up to Stand Out, the podcast. If you're enjoying the show, I urge you to check out influencedna.co and find the podcast page where you can find show notes, links to the guests, extra resources, and a whole lot more. Also, you can subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and make sure to sign up for our mailing list. If you have questions about the show or comments about how we can improve it, drop us a line. I will read every single message. That's podcast at influencedna.co. If you like what you heard, I'd say leave us a five-star review. And if you hated what you heard, leave us a six-star review. Either way, <laughs> we're not stopping. See you on the next show.